0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the no one game development podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, and with me, a special guest, Louise Correll. Oh, man, Louise Correll. Did I butcher it? It's okay. It's close enough. Cruel. <laughs> That's good. Cruel, you're good. All right. So this is the part of the podcast where I ask our guests, which is yourself, a little about yourself uh, to give a little insight of where you've been, where you are at, and where you're heading.
1: Yeah, um, so I'm Luis, and I'm a technical artist for the past uh, 15 years or so, 14 years. I've uh, been around the industry for, for, for that time. I kind of jumped around a bunch of game dev studios for around 10 of those years, and then I went to SideFX for four years, uh, and now I'm a rock star uh, back in game development, doing general TA stuff.
0: That's awesome, dude. Like uh, I came across from you uh, just... My mutual friend, Leo, out there, I think I met you at one of those GDC conferences, yeah. and it was actually at the hot um, precipice of proceduralism, right? Uh, you were over there with Houdini, and you were showing all these cool stuff and potential... With using game dev, Houdini was one of those programs where I was always scared to use right as an environment guy, but I saw the huge potential usage and saw the future of it as well and uh, in general, I want this kind of conversation to kind of talk about how early did you yourself uh saw this kind of becoming a bigger thing and at least what you saw through your own journey of what it is now
1: yeah, so I think. My whole career has been pretty much working on massive data sets. So like I started at Tiburon at EA working on football games, which we just had hundreds of helmets, hundreds of uniforms, hundreds of data. Uh, Then I went to an MMO, which was just uh, like piles and piles of data. Um, And then I did some other stuff. But where I kind of found Houdini was um, in Just Cause 3, we were trying to build a giant open world game. And I was like, there's no way in hell we're going to do this with four environment artists. So I started kind of just seeing what's out there. And then Houdini at that point was kind of becoming a little more friendly. It was, a thing Houdini 12. Um, And I was like, this is it. Because it's basically scripting, but scripting that kind of outputs heart. So since then, I kind of used it on a couple of projects. And then I was like, I think SideFX needs a little help on the game side. Um, Seems like they're trying to break into it. And they have some really good potential there. So I I decided to join them and and try to kind of help. Um, make Houdini more friendly for game dev because it it does have 20 years of reputation of being hard to use and trying to crack that and try to make it and it has that reputation for a reason right it's not because it's it's super friendly and just people don't like it 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 is hard to use and it was harder and especially for game dev there's just some stuff that was like if you want to export something out good luck because FBX was kind of okay and you like OBJs, you could do maybe a little bit and engine was just getting started. So yeah, there's there's a lot of potential to to be used, but it was still kind of early days. But I'd say 2012 was when I kind of went all in and I was like, all right, this is, automation is the, the way forward. And I think as things got harder and harder, and at that point, that was the transition from like PS3 to PS4. Um, and that was already, we were feeling the kind of, the the squeeze of, of needing to pump out more content. So with this Generation Jump, we're seeing that even more. So I think the last one probably got people interested in proceduralism and they're like, yeah, okay, maybe it's not there yet. It's a little hard. And now people are like, still not there yet. It's still a lot hard, but I don't have another option and I can't keep killing myself. So mm-hmm. let's, let's do this and let's see if we can make it work.
0: Yeah, I, I'm finding a lot of people jumping on board where it's not a click of a button just yet for artists to kind of figure out, but almost there. Uh, I kind of am in the similar boat where through the years, we saw this uh, era of Z-brushing where everything was high poly, super detailed, greatest fidelity ever. Uh, And people noodling around, and that was short-lived, whereas, like, we can't spend forever on something, but we still want that quality that we get. And that's where procedural, like, how TAs especially coming in were, like, on your high horse saying, like, I can do this better and faster. (laughs) And we embraced that because, uh, you know, the budgets were uh, blowing up, but... Uh, and, and the people were about the same. So obviously exactly. it, we, we turned to tools uh, uh, like uh, what you guys were doing at side effects, um, what we see a lot of the push of the uh, big open world games, you know, utilizing it because those, those teams couldn't be blown up uh, insanely enough to, to accommodate the quality that it needs to, to seek. So I, I think like you kind of said, 2015 post 2015 was I, I was starting to see this huge shift into figuring this part out, and you you had a great hand at at, at pushing that to 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 have artists kind of think more technical uh, and less about the artistic output. How much resistance do you see then versus now? You kind of spoke about it. Um, is it because of the learning curve, or are we just dealing with just a very lot of senior guys who are just rusty and don't want to learn anything new and just want to keep at it. I mean, how much of that push and pull uh, for you to get the message across?
1: I think it's, 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 that's an interesting question because it's the, the crusty old people tend to also embrace it at some point because they're like, I'm not a young chick anymore. I can't be doing this and, and killing myself. I have a family and kids. I don't want to be working weekends anymore. So I need make me some tools. And I think the the shift has happened when the artists are starting to realize that what we're automating is the stuff they don't want to do. I think early on there was a lot of fear of like, ah, oh, you're 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 taking away the fun, and that's the the fun bits. It's it's like I want to create and I want to be in ZBrush, and now you're telling me that I need to make a character creator with some modular parts, and you're kind of diluting like the tools are kind of diluting the the workflows. And I think the shift has also occurred to where the tools became more like, okay, automatic destination, automatic UVing, automatic baking, let's make that faster. Um, Exporting stuff into game, data management, um, all of that kind of sausage making that is not really making art is the bit that is kind of latching on a little bit more. Um, And then on the world building, it's, it's the, I think substance did a, a giant service to everybody on proceduralism on kind of planting the seed with images and kind of showing it's like, oh, OK, yeah, that's what scatter looks like. Yeah. And that's what maybe masking stuff around. And I think there's a natural progression between that and terrain to where it's already kind of image based, kind of height field. And you can kind of use masks and different trickeries to kind of generate things. And I think that's where the environment progression um kind of kept going and then people just didn't want to place rocks by hand so tools became more available of like the stuff in unreal where you can just kind of paint brush rocks around with foliage brushes and then kind of go deeper and deeper and make those a little bit smarter and have those little biome recipes as part of those and you kind of start kind of growing and growing and and it's a lot of kind of grunt work of like carving roads into mountains that nobody wants to do and it's mostly automated in the softwares too but it's just now making that a little bit more slick,
0: and, and the funny thing is, we, we see that on the side of world building, of course, with uh thinking more in terms of biome and who knew science was now important. Like, like the more, <laughs> the more time I spent in game development, the more I'm like uh, realizing all those classes I was snoozing through actually plays a role. <laughs> Math, now financing, and then. You know, all those like social studies and history is like, oh, these are content that we can use now. So, the very much same way like we we see with Quixel kind of pushing the photogrammetry and people doing themselves now, uh, making art faster. Uh, In kind of recent months, we saw the whole meta-human thing with Unreal. I was like, oh, that's the character version of Quixel basically. And everything is moving towards this direction. And uh, like you kind of said, like the crusty guys at first are apprehensive but now they're embracing because it it kind of gives them that leg up, right? Um, where do you see, how far do you see this going where if I'm an environment artist, if I'm a character artist, if I'm an artist, like even with concept guys, you know, NVIDIA always tease about replacing them with those tools. <laughs> it's like, why don't you just do a, a swatch of paint and now we're going to paint mountains for you, right? So, every, every discipline seems to be threatened. Uh what advice do you have for these people to look out for the next couple of years as these tools are just getting stronger through AI or, or whatever the case?
1: I think as much as we'd like to try, there's not, there's always going to be a human decision behind it. So I think at the best case, AI generates a hundred thousand objects procedurally, and they all look beautiful. It's basically like you have a, a procedural Quixel library. But at the end of the day, someone has to go in and choose those assets and see which ones need to go where and which ones make sense for the world that they're building. So I think environment art in general has kind of started to tilt towards world building and less towards kind of like asset making because things like Quixel, like people are not generally making rocks anymore and sculpting rocks. They just go out and capture it and do it. But now that means that they're spending more time on lighting and composition and world building and design and and I think design is going to be a giant area that. I think art is going to start spilling into because or, or design is going to start kind of pulling into art because that's, that's kind of like the next area that hasn't really changed in years. Um, And there's direct overlap with art. Um, But for, for like a character site, it's one of those, right? That's like, yeah, there's always going to be room for creatures and and things that you can't scan. But if you're kind of your bread and butter is putting pores on a human, then yeah, that might be a little tricky. And, and, and I think it, it just kind of pushes you to be a better artist and like more to it's like, okay, maybe you scan someone, but that's not quite exactly the character. So you still need to kind of push and pull things around and you need to kind of know how to take that data and, and make it your own and make it fit the the game that needs to to or the design intent behind it.
0: Yeah. And to to all the newbies here, right? Uh, we have listeners that are students or, or have uh, goals to get in the industry. <clears throat> what advice would you give them for 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 looking at different these different paths, right? Because the prop making process, the beginning stages of character or, or any of that, seems to be disappearing, and it's mostly like a yeah. senior status of planning and designing and composition and lighting, right? Where should they aim if they're trying to get in the industry in the next couple of years, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, honestly, um, it depends. Like if you're slightly technical, just jump right in. Because I think that's the one advantage junior people coming out of college will have is that they can come in with full knowledge of Houdini and substance and all the AI things that are out there and USD and Omniverse and all these kind of newer tools that are coming out that people haven't really played with. Uh, and they can be the, the expert. So like when I started, that was when like PS2 was turning into PS3 and I knew shaders, uh, Mm -hmm. because I knew that in college. And that's a relatively advanced thing that like I was dealing with graphics programmers and that's not something an artist would usually touch, but because I was the only one with that knowledge or or one of very few people with that knowledge that I, I kind of had a a good way in. Um, so if you are interested in proceduralism or if you're interested in that kind of, either the tool building or kind of even leveraging those type of rule sets. um, I think there's a a giant opportunity for you to kind of leapfrog a lot of this, the crusty people that want to learn it, but don't really have time to it because they have a full-time job and you can just dive right in and, and look at it. And honestly, it's an awesome time to be a a person going into real time because the other part of the, the side effects stuff was seeing all the film, people pivot straight into virtual production and, and game engine. So there's a giant demand for people that know Unreal and, and can just world build in there and, and kind of make things optimal and and, and kind of make them run and and set up a scene in, in that environment. So it, it is a great time. Again, if you're box modeling characters to make your topology, maybe there's not a lot of practical use for that right now because there's other workflows that have come up since then, but there's a lot of open field for you to run and, and kind of find, um, your, your home.
0: Well, speaking of world, man, I don't know how familiar you are with the tool and I, I don't expect you to, to know much about it, but I just, if you do, would love to hear your thoughts. So Promethean AI is one of those yeah. hot tools right now. And it's basically world building, <laughs> which is the part that seniors are holding on to, but it seems like it's doing that part too now. Uh, I would love to kind of hear your take on it because as a TA, I, you know, I fully expect you to like always be on the pulse of what's happening, what's hot and yeah. what potentially can be used. So, we'd love to kind of hear your thoughts and and if you don't mind, kind of give your overview of what Promethean AI is for those who don't know that are listening. Yeah.
1: So Promethean AI, and I'm going to butcher everything, so I apologize to Andrew already. So Andrew Maximov, he was a Naughty Dog tech artist, um, amazing, one of the kind of the the top of the industry. Uh, Splintered off, made his own company. Uh, The original promise was to kind of leverage AI and all of the things that were kind of starting to come up in basically tool building. So uh, the usual problems that AI is good is kind of like taking a lot of training and then synthesizing new stuff. Um, that was kind of the pillar for it to where I was basically like take a bunch of dungeons and then make a new dungeon from it and take yeah. a bunch of rooms and then, uh, make new rooms from it and then do it in a kind of syntax based, um, workflow. So you can say, I want the room to be more dirty and there's a mapping between dirty and assets that are dirty. So it kind of links those up and the kind of worlds build based on that. Um, I was, uh, a little surprised because that kind of pivoted a little bit on the Mm -hmm. latest kind of on the launch where it's like it look a lot like houdini engine for a lot Mm -hmm. of it um so i think that's a good thing because it's kind of like ai is great but a you need a ton of data to train it which kind of defeats the purpose somewhat because if you need to train you need a ton of data to train it you can just do that ton of data and put it in your game instead of kind of building 500 rooms to then generate 20, you can just mm-hmm. build those 20 by hand. So at some point there's a diminishing return with proceduralism to where if it takes longer for you to build the tool than it is to just brute force it, yeah, it's not worth it. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff in there with the kind of semantic tagging and, and almost the kind of shotgun space that's kind of also emerging, which is just content management and seeing things that are related to each other and being able to kind of have a palette and be able to kind of name, Hey, I need a tree. And I need the trees that go next to this tree. And you kind of just know from clustering that's like, okay, usually these rocks go under this tree. So if you place this tree, these are the rocks that need to go under it. So I think the kind of, the thing that's usually more on the design side, which is like, I don't know anything about drawing. I don't know anything about world building, but make me a room teenager, dirty on the eighties or from the eighties. I think that type of Workflow has its place, but I don't know if it's there quite yet. Um, and I don't know if there's a desire for people to world build that way right now. Um, so I think that that part is still a little bit safe unless you're more like on the indie side. I can see people needing that type of workflow because they just don't have a world builder. Um, so they they would rely on a tool uh, before the other bits, which is like dropping simulation of rocks on the thing and, and kind of having those settle. I think that's kind of bread and butter procedural workflows and the kind of the rule base which is like select an area build me a forest like that's that's proceduralism 101 and if there's a little bit better logic on how that's being generated because it got trained on ai on on different forests so the the model is a little bit smarter but i think at the core of it it's still very much a it's a tool to make things easier to use and it's I think I'll venture to say that it's heavily inspired on some of the procedural workflows that kind of have come out in the last years. And then they kind of one up it with some of the kind of context based and some of the kind of asset browsing and and Mm -hmm. context sensitive stuff.
0: Yeah. A lot of what you're saying too, is, um, you know, a designer and a world builder is always like this two man team and of course support. Right. And that's kind of like the workflow for most levels that are built. Um, with the set getting stronger, uh, I, I do see a merge eventually happening where yeah. a designer can just go through the selected library asset and and be able to drag and drop themselves and have the rules already set where it is correct, where certain rocks belong to a certain tree or whatever, where the artist doesn't really need to be there, but maybe maintain that content library, right? And that may kind of speed up the workflow, but also this kind of lends to towards to kind of the indie development right if if these these disciplines are merging into one uh it makes it easier for for developers that have ideas to kind of go ahead and do it within within a capacity right if they want to make like huge games of course they need a bigger team yeah but uh that is what i've been seeing the last five years is like we're starting to see especially teams in china that have smaller teams they work 24 hours a day, yeah. <laughs> insane amount of uh, content like uh, the Wukong or Bright Memory, all these like very high fidelity looking games that were made by f- a fraction of the God of War team, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that has been, I think, a direct result for what you guys were doing, the side effects, the direct result of what Promethean AI is promoting, Substance, all these tools are just enabling the quality bar to be met as long as the scope is within reason, right? Um, did you anticipate that type of thing so fast? This, like That's a five-year span of, like, incredibleness. Yeah. I don't no, think I, everybody I, saw that.
1: No, I honestly, like, that's the intent behind it, right? It was to, to kind of democratize art, but but not really. But just kind of, like, take all of the, the crap out of it mm-hmm. and, and let people do their work and, and kind of make them fast. And when you see the bloat of, like, a, a massive team, a lot of it is not pure artistry and they're just kind of sitting there sculpting rocks and there's some cases it is and that's another problem um Mm -hmm. but for the most part it's a lot of kind of file management and iteration and kind of there's just waste um on on kind of larger companies and having more tools i think that's the thing that kind of balances that out a little bit and you can kind of slim it down and then um it's awesome to see that happening to be honest and Mm -hmm. and i think it is kind of just embracing new workflows and then seeing what you can get done with a smaller team.
0: Yeah. I think the key word that you just talked about iteration is kind of (laughs) symbiotic to game development. And it's the number one reason why uh, game development sometimes takes longer than planned. Right. Uh, Because the iteration process either is too slow and it goes through this A through Z process before being spit out again. And then, Critiqued and then it <laughs> goes back into a weird circle my 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 thing with game development is like it's never it's never the tools it's always the ideas right, but hopefully this minimizes the feedback necessary to kind of get a stamp of approval because it's so fast it's like you're in real time now and you can change things on the fly. Where an art director uh can 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 be there with you and hover, basically. <laughs>
1: it's a exactly. dream come true. Uh, so I think yeah, yeah, just to jump on that one real quick. The that's what I was gonna comment on, the the Promethe stuff too. And that's honestly the biggest challenge we've had uh with procedural stuff is how do you art direct it? How do you get someone to sit behind that and be like, I want yeah. like 20% <laughs> over here like that that yeah. tree like that tree over there like pluck it out and move it over here yeah. or I want to swap that one and it's like wow well, it's kind of like this giant system and we just built everything and if you change that one if you regenerate it you lose that like that's the whole point of it yeah. um so kind of how to art direct proceduralism is a a kind of open problem and there's different solutions on how to do it but it is an interesting one and and to your point the goal definitely is and i think like when people ask to define a pipeline is basically like, what is your tolerance to change? And how fast can you iterate on something? So if I say, if I look at a game and i am be like, there's a seam on that rock, mm-hmm. how long does it take for you to give me that fixed? Mm-hmm. If it is something that you can be like, oh, I can just click on that rock, I can content browser, export it, send it to something, export it back and bake the textures and you're done. And that that's even more complicated than it probably needs to be. Uh, but that's a pipeline. It's basically like, if I don't like that coffee cup or coffee cup, how fast can you make something about it? And I think the ideal, which is where people are starting to lean in the virtual production side, is you have your art director, you have your design director, you have everybody in the the kind of stage making all of those calls live and as fast as they can, and then that can even be in a rough form in a gray up form, but then you kind of have some processes that come behind it and make it look pretty um, but at the at the end of the day it it is that is like though the the directors making the decisions what game they want to make. If that's an indie and that's you the the sole developer is the director, or if it's in a big company and you have multiple art directors. Right. But at the end of the day it's how do you get those visions accomplished? Mm-hmm. Well virtual production is definitely as an environment, guy it
0: has been a very exciting, alluring space. <clears throat> you know, just like, just give anyone a chance to work on those Marvel films. And I was like, yeah, I'll be on set moving rocks around. <laughs> I'll be cool with that. <clears throat> but uh, I would love to kind of hear you dive more into the challenges that they have with proceduralism on, on a movie set, right? Versus a game production. What's the major differences here and the problems that they're dealing with with an art director hovering on both sides? Is it similar or is it just a little bit? different in movie terms.
1: I don't know if they've gotten to the point where they have a lot of the proceduralism working live. I think Mm -hmm. the dream is that you have a procedural staircase. And if the director says, I want it to be a little bit wider or a little bit taller, that asset is live in the game at runtime. Um, So that's a giant hard problem to crack, right? Because games are not designed or game engines are designed to run lean and mean. And not kind of dynamically change topology of things. So uh, we we had a joke that like the Unreal static mesh is called a static mesh for a reason because it's static. It's not <laughs> designed to be procedural and move around and kind of update update itself while you're playing the game. Yeah. Um, and they're they're making lots of strides and they have like procedural components and things now. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's the challenge is, which honestly, a game doesn't really do for the most part. It's like how do you have the set be live? And you can make those edits. Um, and that's where you are seeing like Unity has some stuff when in VR mode and Unreal has it too. But that's where we're kind of seeing more and more of that to where you're in the game, playing the game, making those decisions. Maybe the remote connection comes in to where you have an environment artist, an effects artist, an animator, all kind of live linked into the main hub session, mm-hmm. um, which really doesn't apply as much to a, a game developer. Um it's not like you're in a play test and someone's like, oh, that door is too big. Let's kind of make it wider. Mm-hmm. Usually you write that down and then it takes three days to kind of come back and, and have another play test with that door fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the goal would be you play the game, you say, okay, these are all the problems that we had with it. Someone can go through and people can fix it immediately. You launch the game again, all the things are fixed and you're playing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, we're still pretty far from it, but that's, that's what the film people are trying to solve to where it's like how fast can we get those changes uh, updated. And eventually, I think the game uh, industry will have to kind of be on the same spot. We'll benefit from that. Yeah, it is a tricky thing.
0: Like how how much do you want to be in those QA testing session and and really want to change (laughs) it? I don't think most artists wants to be there live to kind of fix doors. Uh, Yeah, but I can definitely it's the hot seat. Yeah, it's like hey, just be on standby. We're play testing right now. It's like oh. Great. Yeah. <laughs> this is right up to your bugs for me. But uh, yeah, the film said it does have a, its unique challenges. It is a special feature. Whatever they develop on that side will definitely fall back on this side and vice versa, which is what we've been doing. Um, so, that that's a, what do you think really is the next evolution of proceduralism? Be, besides, you, you said AI driven is a cut, you know, unfortunately game Companies don't really share data. That would have solved the issues. Like, just keep making games, and this thing gets more powerful, right? But everyone has to build their own library, and that takes time. Um, other than that, you uh, we were talking about like being able to proceduralize something and then have manual control within that system, and then step back again. Be um, what else do you think is really kind of holding us back from? a touch of a button and being, is it just purely being less subjective or what, what is
1: it exactly that we need to nail here to remove that barrier? I think the, well, all of those are problems. So I think the, the making the algorithms better. So like if that's powering with AI or, or however you need to do it to like make the black boxes smarter, um, art directing, it is a giant problem. Um, part of the art directing being a problem is that the tools are still too hard to use, right? Um, so I think that kind of, I think it's the biggest challenge is Most artists are still not using those tools. Um, it's still, you have the tech artists and maybe they kind of wrap some stuff up so uh, an environment artist can use it. And maybe there's one or two more senior or slightly more technical people that are the ones doing and using those tools. But it's not one of those that's like a ZBrush. And even like, I think a good analogy is, Uh, substance painter to substance designer Mm -hmm. right now we're still in substance designer land. Mm -hmm. So there's some people that are going to go and they're going to do it, but we need that painter jump to where now everybody can jump in and use it. And they'll use the smart masks and they'll use the kind of the fast sliders to kind of get the look that they want, but they still have the full control. So again, to, to point at algorithmic or Adobe at this point, um, as a success story of proceduralism, I think that's, the next step is how do you make it easy? And maybe the Promethean AI is that because it is very much UX driven and very much more friendly and more you type a command and it does it as opposed to be like, all right, let me load this file from this place and then turn it to this other place. And here's a bunch of sliders and, um, uh, and make it a little more complicated. So I think lowering the bar of entry. So it's any artist can jump in and be like, yeah, I want to make a forest. Cool. Here's mm-hmm. how you make a forest.
0: Let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Silent Media. You are creating an exciting world, but are the players truly connecting with your story? Audio is the main line to your player's emotional core. Good or bad game audio can often be the difference between a player continuing in their journey or giving up. At Silent Media, they know game audio. They've been through challenges before and they want to help. So you can book a free game audio strategy session to tell them more about what you're working on. Go ahead and go to silentmedia.com forward slash booking spelled S-I-L-E-N media.com forward slash booking. Look guys, audio is one of those things that can be very difficult. You have no idea what to do with it. Now, you don't have to figure it out on your own, especially if you're an indie company or you're working with a small group. You guys already have your plates full of responsibility. So why not seek a professional help on a very important part of your game? Go to silentmedia.com right now forward slash booking and give it a try. Just so Meet the guys over there and just see what you can end up with. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. All right, back to our episode. Do you think it's a lot of artists just really... Because from what I've seen, like a lot of these game development cycles are so long. And when they finally get to it, it's like seven years later, right? (laughs) After your first demo of (laughs) of showing them this could have been so much easier. And uh, and in that small period of research, most developers don't really spend that time to kind of gather up new tools. It really, really does come from a hobbyist or a student coming into the company to kind of spread the news. Uh, that's the only way I've ever seen new tools get to uh, uh, get introduced into a studio uh, and it's never the senior guys that do it. It's always like the junior-ish or the guy who's been doing indie for a long time and finally comes in and this is his real first job type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Am I on the mark on that? Like, how how are we going to fix that issue where it just seems like seven year cycles before someone actually does something with it?
1: I think it's tricky because like you could imagine that there's a lot of cool stuff happening right now. Right. Because we're in the beginning of a new cycle. People are starting to figure out what can you even do with this hardware? And like most of the first iterations are generally kind of like port ups where you just double the texture size and subdivide some meshes and, but it's mostly the same techniques. But as we kind of go deeper and deeper, people start figuring out like, oh, you can run machine learning on the fly on this thing. And oh, what else can you do? Um, And there's like all sorts of GPU craziness that people are doing now. And um, so I think as we progress into the cycle, we're going to see people talk publicly about what they're doing, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of cool. Um so I think we we're, we're still figure out um the next stage or we, we don't even know what's possible so I think GDC is 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 the the release. hopefully we'll start having that at some point um but to your point of what how to get a tool in I think it, it basically is that so every tool that I've seen including like photogrammetry is you have some weird kid in the corner including (laughs) myself that goes off and he's like blender 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 blender." and i was like shut up just go away (laughs) like and then it takes a couple of like more senior people to take it and run with it and make some beautiful art with it Um, and then it starts to kind of trickle back down so it's this weird leapfrog thing that like i I bring photogrammetry as an example oh like because i was I was doing it way, way back when, like 2012. And I was like, photogrammetry. Photogrammetry is amazing. Like, you guys are sculpting rocks in ZBrush. Please don't. Let's go out and scan some rocks. And they're like, man, it's kind of mushy. Like, I can sculpt it better. And then Dice came out and they were like, here's Battlefront. And we were looking at it at the same time everybody else was looking at it. We just kind of crushed it and and did it. Um, And then everybody's like, oh, photogrammetry. Like, photogrammetry is the thing. Um, so I think blender starting uh, is at the edge of that to where there's like some people are like, yeah, blender, maybe, um, uh, there's again, a dirty word associated with it. Almost like Houdini where it's like, mm, not for me. I saw it when I was in college and I didn't like it. Hmm. So, and then people are like, well, it's a different beast at this point. Um, but yeah, like I would say there's companies that are just set up to be kind of front thinking. Like I think DICE was, I think Embark is a good place to kind of look at. Um, they have massive geniuses in there. Um, a lot of the kind of Battlefront two team that kind of, or Battlefront one, the the kind of the photogrammetry wizards that kind of push that tech, um, are there now. So I think there's kind of pockets of genius in the industry that will kind of share whenever they're ready. And actually Embark is sharing, um, quite often. Um, that is going to have like a trickle down effect almost of the kind of, there's people on the bleeding edge and it'll kind of make its way through the, the system. And then there's the kind of, there's the indie and the leapfroggy bits where it's like some kid wrote some paper somewhere and and managed to pull this off. And now it's a thing and everybody loves it. Yeah. Bark is something
0: I, I keep hearing and I'm trying to get someone not from that team to kind of come on the show. And so they're, they're, they're more than just a game studio, right? They're, they're a tech house too. Do they develop tools? Like I'm always so mushy about it because everyone talks about the technology they use, but it's like they're a game studio first and foremost, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I think they're they are a game studio first and foremost, but I think their focus right now has been kind of because they're a new studio, yeah. they don't have a lot of the technical that that most other studios have. So they're kind of coming in clean and just being like, it's okay, what's on. latest? What's latest and greatest? Okay, Blender, cool. How do we make this work? Okay, yeah. Substance, machine learning. AI, Rust, what, what's the cool thing? And let's try it. Um, so they've been kind of posting some really awesome stuff on on their Medium page. Um, and then there's people like Anastasia Opera. She's like a big Houdini user. Posts, She's doing crazy machine learning type stuff. Um, posts those, uh, kind of openly talks about it. Um, and I think that would just kind of make its way through the system um, as people look at it, see their use for their problem and and kind of make it work yeah. um, well, there's one talk i think it's gdc or something that i saw um that I'm, i want to say is david lightwell I'm from ubisoft so i want to try to plug it mm-hmm. if it's true uh but basically the the thought is the tools outlive the games hands down in every any company yeah. you write a tool and you have that tool for multiple iterations of the game um, but there, you're right. There's not a focus on it. Right. So I think that's the, the the shift in the industry that's starting to see it's either people are just being like, OK, we don't develop tools anymore we just buy them and we're going to use Unreal and Meta humans and we're just going to we, we can't compete at that point. And I think that's where the game engines are getting close to that stage to where there's a lot of people use off the shelf ones and then if you have a specific need for a type of game that you make, you have your custom one, or if your custom one is better than what the off the shelf one is you keep your your custom one um, but I think for a lot of kind of younger places or smaller places, they're just saying like we can't like we just buy off the shelf tools and and kind of use this um, and the other people are just focusing on their internal tools and just building, building and, and focusing on the tools and seeing the value on tools before scripts were kind of like, yeah, just, yeah, there's some my scripts and it's, it's some stuff that TAs keep in a corner and we don't really pay attention to it. And now those are the kind of business differentiators for a lot of companies. It's like, Oh, they can build a world faster than anybody else, or they can make a character better than anybody else. And those are all their kind of secret sauce, internal tools. Mm-hmm. I would love to kind of run an exercise uh, by you and
0: kind of hear your thoughts about this. You know, we we have like uh, people that are constantly um, have aspirations to their own indie studio or they're bringing it into their current studio, try to fasten the workflow. But, you know, you kind of got an industry in the PS2, PS3 era, so let's pick a game from that era. I don't know, Dead Space, Resident Evil, whatever the case, right? If you were to kind of have to gather a team and do a remaster with a, you know, a very efficient team. And you know, I know you kind of did this exercise at at, <laughs> at side effects, but like what tools should I be looking out for? Kind of like what Embark doing? What's hot? What's going to be hot to make the most efficient, good-looking game for the next 2-3 years uh in a reasonable manner.
1: Yeah, I'd say if you're a tiny team, pick one of the 3 major game engines at this point. Um, and don't even bother trying to, to write a renderer at this point. Um, so start off there. And then on the tool side, it's, it's basically people laughed at the asset stores back, back in the day. And they're like, everybody's going to have the same hat, but now you're looking at Quixel. So, so I think, yeah, like mega scans is, is a mandate at this point that mm. everybody has a subscription to it. Um, I do think Houdini, I'm biased, but I, I do think that if you just need to especially like if you're uprising and remastering, that's kind of bread and butter. Just like take an asset, subdivide it, mm-hmm. apply a bump map on it, and now you kind of have a less crappier version of it. Mm-hmm. It's still not as good as if someone hand sculpts it, but for the ninety five percent of assets that you don't want to retouch. Um Artomatics was a good one. Um before they got bought by Unity. It's still a good one, but it's I think it's more walled garden now. Um but that's basically AI kind of texture synthesis and texture uprising. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in that area, especially if you're working on remasters. Uh, so basically you can take a two fifty six texture of a brick, run it through this, and then it gives you kind of photorealistic brick texture. Um, I think from like the the bleeding border edge stuff is AI type scenarios, which is like the most around texturing. I think there's going to be some cool stuff in that space. Uh, I, I do. I'm a Blender fan. Um, even before I started at SideFX, I think that was I was I was going to write a Blender fork at some point mm-hmm. to try to get it the UX to not suck. Um, I think that still has a place, and I think that still, if you have internal development resources. And if you can put it towards an open source project, whatever it is, and you can share that out, everybody is better off for it. So I think instead of trying to one-off something from scratch because you think you can do it, um, just take something off the shelf. It can be open source, make that a little bit better. And now everybody gets it and everybody kind of does the same thing. And now the industry is better off for it. I think that's one thing that I really like about side effects is, and my role was Let's just talk to everybody, see what everybody's doing. Everybody was very willing to share and very open. And we kind of put them all into the, the tools and then everybody benefited from it. And then some people that contributed one thing got another thing out of it. And, and I think that model is good. Um, see what else. Yeah. And take a look at like photogrammetry. You, you kind of have to, uh, if you want to survive at this point, or if you're making a realistic game. Um, What else? Yeah, it depends on what your focus is. So if your focus is... I don't care what it costs and I need to get it done. There's Mm -hmm. options. If your cost is I want to be more open source and more indie and kind of run bare bones, there's other options. Um, If you have a lot of artists, you can do one thing. If you have a lot of engineers, you can do another thing. Um, It's tricky. um, If I were to assemble it, I would get probably like three or four artists, probably like six TAs, three to six engineers. And I think, and then probably like a few designers to kind of just make sure everything's still good.
0: Four artists, six TAs. So <laughs> TAs yeah. outnumbering. Is yeah, that, is that the norm happening now? Because TAs have always been the smaller department. You see the TA starting to grow now as kind of like the, the trend.
1: I do. And I think some artists are kind of falling into the TA slot. Um, And the reason for that is that one TA can take an artist and if we pair them up, that can be like 10 people. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's the secret is like if you have an artist kind of feeding ideas and feeding assets and feeding kind of workflows to a TA, that artist, it's kind of like the heavy and the medic yeah. To where it's like the TA is the medic and then the heavy is just going through and killing everything because it's super powered and it has custom built tools that do exactly the workflow that they want mm-hmm. at the blinding speed that they want. So yeah, like if you get the right character artist, you can have someone pumping out a character a day and just mm-hmm. crushing through it. And if they're not dealing with game resing and UVing and baking textures and rigging, it's all automated. They can they can rip through content.
0: That's um, a very interesting perspective. It's uh And I think it's completely true, yeah, you you tell your ideas to a TA, a TA can like come up with these systems It's like, all right, just give me six heads, (laughs) it's like, all right. (laughs) Um, And it seems to be moving in that direction Uh, and well, that's very interesting to kind of hear that uh, that shift. I I would love to kind of run this by you too and along the same vein of that, you know, in the recent years, the last five six years, uh, I think No Man's Sky is probably the first of the indie procedural world. Yeah. Of, well, maybe not the first. Minecraft, I would say, is probably the first. Sure. And then, but like there was a trend of the, these small indie games making mega bucks, right? No Man's Sky yeah. came out of the gate kind of kind of stinky, but they came back around and mm-hmm. re-delivered all the promises. And in the, the pandemic, especially uh, Valheim. The Viking Survivor game? Yeah, you've probably heard of it. Small indie team, all procedural. I'm still getting my head around it, so I don't fully understand it, but I just know it is procedural driven and they're making mega bucks as well. And it really comes to show that Maybe the shouldering, hovering art director is not that necessary as long as the content is, is vast and, and there and it kind of makes sense and not out of place. I uh, would love to kind of hear your thoughts about that. Like, is, is the art director and needing to develop a tool so that this guy can tell you it's green rather than red that important to the overall product? And you, should you guys give them that credence <laughs> of allowing that bullshit uh, to, to get into your actual TA uh,
1: duties? yeah um so that's a a two-parter so let me rephrase the question to make sure so one is our art director useless (laughs) yeah and then what was the beginning of it because the beginning was going oh our indie teams and kind of fully procedural games the The future yeah um so actually i was going to bring up no man's sky earlier because the art director brought up there's a a talk that he gave and i'm not even going to remember his name but he's an awesome person um and a great talk But he was talking about like the science of it towards like, I need to know the difference between a glacier and a fjord. And Mm -hmm. a glacier is a self-contained lake and a fjord goes to the sea. And like all of these kind of things where it's like more like the geology and like the biomes and like more of that, like how things actually work underneath. Because if I'm going to recreate these systems, I need to understand how they really work. And then I have I can do it. It's like, why do forests look a certain way? Is it because fires happen every 20 years and then a new bunch of trees kind of grow from that. And so there's a whole kind of, uh, and and it's the, the, the age old dilemma, which is, do you just make art and you don't really care and you kind of just, you look at it and then you just repeat it. And then intrinsically those rules will kind of be there because you're copying nature and Mm -hmm. you will just put things in the right place because you think they look good, but it's also because scientifically that's, where That's they nice. do grow, it's like you're not going to put a mushroom on top of a branch. You're going to put a mushroom on the bottom. Mm-hmm. But if you're teaching a system how to do it, it's just going to scatter mushrooms everywhere. So you kind of have to kind of digest those down and really mm-hmm. understand um, why they're, they're a certain way. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all going the same place, which is like you're, you're making art. Um, so I think, yes, procedural games is the future. Um, I gave a talk, GDC, uh, three, four years ago uh, which was like on the AI summit, like one of the micro talks, which was like crazy ideas. And I was trying to do basically a a game where every time you played, it was a different game. And it was a FPS, uh, game that every time you play, it was a different level. Um, I think that's still possible and I think it will happen. And the question is, will it be as good as a hand-drawn or hand-designed one? And that's where the line becomes like, well, it depends. What's the gameplay? if it doesn't really matter like Minecraft then you can kind of just muscle your way through anything. So if you get a weird cave, it just doesn't matter. Um, or if it's a very designy platformer, if you can't make a jump, you're screwed. Um, so that's, there's, there's a sliding scale on the genre, but yeah, like a racing game. Yeah. You can make a racing game for this procedural and just, mm-hmm. even if you have a thousand input curves that make a thousand Tracks, and then you kind of just spin them around a little bit and, and do some Lego combinations. I think that's where probably indies are going to go um, soon. There's already a ton of procedural, like, right. There's proc gen and roguelikes and there's, mm-hmm. there's hundreds of those are just breaking that mold and kind of making a roguelike in a racing game is, is the kind of the next part of it. Uh, But there's, yeah, I think that cells was basically all procedural, but it was kind of like procedural, but it was art-directed components. So you kind of have both, um, which I think is going to be the next step, which is you still need your art director to kind of tell you what the components look like, but those got assembled in crazy procedural ways. Um, The the art director question is a hard one uh, because I do believe if you have a strong vision, that's a good thing. So I think if you have an art director that is basically being like, this is what the game needs to look like, this is why it doesn't look like that. And this is what you need to do it. Um, that's amazing. I don't know if I've ever worked with one of those, maybe <laughs> once or twice in my career. Uh, so a lot of like a lot of the art d- directors kind of start falling into just kind of people management and cat herding and and, and kind of forget about the art because they're dealing with like product management and all this other crap on top of being an art director. So they yeah. just can't be like, This is what I want the mood of this level to be like. It's all this like how many people do I have and who's going to go on what and I need to hire so many people and the designers are bitching at me for this thing because it's too saturated and they can't read. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've seen some studios that do both to where you kind of have a production art director that's more on the kind of nuts and bolts and then you have an artsy-fartsy one that's more like the mood. Uh, I've seen the concept lead be more of that kind of artsy-fartsy Mm -hmm. vision, um, and the art director is a little more practical. Um, I do think there's depending on the game, but the kind of truly beautiful games, um, you do need that kind of vision and cohesion because otherwise it just looks like every artist did whatever they wanted to and it doesn't add up to anything and it's just brown soup. Yeah. A
0: a singular voice is always helpful. And I I think, uh, judging by the ratio, there's just too many art directors that is on the other side of the fence yeah. that are not very helpful. Um, yeah. And uh, w- one of the roles that has been popping up in recent years, talking about everyone moving to technical is the technical art director, kind of like what you're saying, more practical um, like kind of even what you were mentioning about the no man's sky, like thinking in terms of biomes, like the overall picture, like to me, that's the evolution of what an art director should be now in game studios. It's like more of a sp- being inspiring of course, but Mm -hmm. like uh, more thinking of the bigger picture of set pieces uh, instead of like being in there noodling uh, assets around. Right. Because um, in the end, I think uh, most players don't see any of that. uh, Really. Uh, You can argue that the impression of last of us two was overall was awesome. And it was art directed the shit out of it. But I mean, really it's like, If the end product, like these indie games to me are are at least showing me like in the end, people don't care that much about the artistic, you know, language to the T, right? It's more like the impression is there and gameplay is always king. And um, I think we lean so far to that side in recent years, which resulted to games being... Uh, longer to make, uh, taking more time, taking more money and uh, and just turnover rate at a studio, all that stuff. And I, I think the way the indie guys are doing it, lean and small, if we can translate that, is a better direction. We tried this other direction for a long time. Let's switch it up and just be practical and finish this on time and sell a lot of units, right? Which is the main goal, I think, for every game. No matter, <laughs> no matter what Naughty Dog tells you, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think they, in the end, if they can spell 13, 13 million copies in half the time, they will. Uh, so, yeah, I, a lot of these positives are obviously coming from proceduralism. And I think that at first there was some resistance because of the, the, the workflow was so different, undefined. Whereas like, what are you talking about, man? If we'll figure this out. And then come back and talk to me, right? but I now I think because the teams are still the same size, so maybe slightly bigger, and the quality and expectations just so much higher uh that it is impossible to kind of do things the old way and um it is kind of empowering to kind of see these smaller teams just kicking ass, and uh what what is the disconnect here? uh between these small teams and bigger teams. It's just the bigger teams just takes longer to, to change. And the small teams can just iterate whenever they want. Why why are not why are we not seeing this much success, at least on the bigger teams, uh with proceduralism I, more often?
1: I don't know. Like I'd argue that like Ubisoft has a lot of good successes on the procedural yeah. land. Um I'd argue that there's some bigger teams that are doing it and 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 kind of crushing it. Uh, I think there is a risk associated with proceduralism, right? So like I've had art directors talk to me and it's like, I know if I have 40 people on this, I'll get it done. I don't know if I have six people and a robot if I can get it done. <laughs> so that's risky. So I might just go with the thing I know, which is 40 people and we'll get that done. And sure, it would have been great to do it with half the time and double the money. Yeah. Uh, or, and but ideally there's this is risky so i think it takes the kind of the the pack leaders to kind of go through and and kind of do it once and then people can be like okay that's a success story i can point to that and be like no man's sky that's a game that's procedural that doesn't look like minecraft and it looks beautiful and so that's possible and then you look at like we had how so many people coming and be like wildlands. I want to do wildlands. Mm -hmm. Like that, just, just that, like the videos we saw is amazing. We want to world build that way. Um, and then the, the the dirty secret is that there's like, that's some of the best procedural people in the industry working for a really long time, building those set of tools. It's not something that you're like open Houdini and say, make wildlands. It's like, there's, there's a framework. And then there's a lot of tools that were built on top of it internally to make that sync. Um, And a lot of really, really smart and talented people um, kind of building those. So I think eventually those tools will start kind of becoming more default and everybody has them like photogrammetry. Now it's kind of like ubiquitous, Um, but there's, we're still at the kind of tip of that spear that there's a few pack leaders doing some amazing stuff like uh, David Santiago at uh, Insomniac. Like there's some presentations on what he did on Spider-Man that are just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a tiny team making a massive city. Um, so there's, there's the six success stories there. I think the disconnect is the risk taking from just inherent from a, a large company. Um, there's plenty of examples of big companies taking those risks, but there's plenty of examples of, people not wanting to kind of rock the boat and having safe, safe pathways forward and and wanting to stick with those.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, man, I completely agree. Uh, It
0: it takes years to become a senior, it takes years to become an art director. And, and those are the, usually the slower ones to innovate. (laughs) It's just the way the structures are kind of built. And I do agree with you. There are like a lot of AAA companies that are are doing it right. Uh, Ubisoft, is uh synonymous with uh, with uh, with big open worlds on a yearly basis, right? And they have so many, all their franchises are open world. And that was a bold move at the as a pack leader that they made years ago after Assassin's Creed, right? It's like open world is our thing. We're gonna keep doing open world. That's the way to do it. And they are benefiting uh from what you kind of started with uh before. They have this huge content library of knowledge of people that they just kept. And they're just recycling that and are building bigger and bigger franchises. And it is uh it is the best example of what these indie companies are doing at a at a bigger scale. And um I I hope uh I hope as we go into this new era that everyone's kind of learning from that and, and doing the same thing. I will ask you this though. Um your little idea with the FPS, and every time you play it, right, it's kind of like a, a little twist on the sing- singular linear experience, right? And it's the one reason why uh, the linear experience have been just dying, uh, aside from from streaming kind of ruining the story or or just lower hours of uh, of gameplay where people just don't buy into, it. and and maybe just investment not buying into single player games as much. Uh, I think we both kind of grew up in that. Kojima era where we love single player games. I still love mm-hmm. it. I, you know, if there's a good one, I, I would love, I just, not a lot. How do you feel about proceduralism fixing that? Is there a solution that is it just making them faster? What do you think is yeah, I the think problem it, there? Yeah. I think it's
1: making it faster. So the usual argument is like, do I spend hundreds of van hours making a dinosaur graveyard that I'm just going to pass it by once yeah. and never use it, never see it again. And then the obvious question is like, no, I'm going to make some modular pieces and use those and and repeat them. And maybe if it's important to the story, I'll do a little bit. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's like, you can't, you can't justify that cost, right? If the the player passes through it, 30 seconds just passes by. And it's not going to be kind of business savvy to be able to do it. But I do think that you can save that with proceduralism um, to where, Everything else is figured out for you, so all that there's left is the, the interesting things and and the little bits of it. So, or you kind of make it so you play it over and over again, so it's not uh, the u- reusability is built into the gameplay. So there's some games that's like every time you die, that's the punishment. You kind of have to relearn the level, mm-hmm. and that's way back to like spelunky days um, and probably before. Um, so I think there's there's a, a business model there, and there's a there's a validity to it like i uh, my dream has always been like a castlevania or a a mega man that you just play that's that's to date me like metal Gear was already past my childhood uh <laughs> but like those kind of super nintendo games that's like we could totally make those procedurally now now the question is is there a market for it and then shovel knight will tell you yeah there's a market for it um and it's just a matter can you make it cheap and fast enough to to kind of make it work. Um, I think even like Cuphead is a good example of like, mm-hmm. you can just art the crap out of it and make hand-drawn game. And as long as you can kind of make it well enough and fast enough and smart enough, you can, yeah. it, it, you can one off everything if yeah. your workflows are fast enough. And I think that's the dream really. It's like ideally no one would use model kits and they could just ZBrush the whole game. And if it was fast enough, and I think that's the, the missing piece. It's like, how, how can we make that fast enough that you can just intent and, and, and kind of put what you want? And I think that's at the core of it. That's what people want to do. It's like, I want to make a dinosaur cemetery. And then it's like, OK, what do I have? Well, I have some dinosaur skeletons on Quixel. So I want to pick those up and then I have to scan some things Then I'm going to go out and scan it. So I think that we're trying to get to that. Um, and it's going to be a combination of everything. It's going to be a combination of pre-existing parts, combination of better tools, combination of about fat, faster workflows for making custom stuff. Um, and, and, and a little bit mix of everything. And then there's going to be so lower hanging fruits. That's like, if you lop off 3D, then there's a whole other things that you can do. Right. So I think that's where you, you kind of pick your battles a little bit. It's like, if you don't need it to be God of War Vista level of beauty and you're okay just being like, a little isometric game, then there's plenty of stuff you can do there. Right. And they can be equally beautiful and equally fun. Like Monument Valley is a good example of like a, a beautiful game that it's it's a different type of artwork, but it's still pretty.
0: Yeah. All I'm hearing is that if you're gonna pitch a game, you should have a TA in the room Uh because building cheap and fast is like the key words to getting things financed and 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 profitability, and uh, I think yeah, if anything, the pandemic have shown us like there's a lot of interest uh, for people to finance ideas, and um, I think you guys, what you guys are doing as tas are, are, are kind of enabling, just removing a lot of the tools that that just takes longer than usual, and just making it faster, um, is helping the industry as a whole, right? Uh, games just yeah, there was. I still, we're, we're still kind of lingering a bit because a lot of these game cycles are still five to eight years, right? And maybe it's not the tool's fault, it's the people's fault. But uh, what I hope to see is that this this new era is more about games faster <laughs> um, because I think as a developer, <clears throat> falsely, you know, it looks like job security, but nobody likes being on these game cycles for five, eight years. We like showing people what we've been doing, so... <clears throat> With that, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we're in we're, we're heading in that direction, and hopefully, this era shows that we're doing it right by correcting a lot of the wrongs in the last couple of two generations. But uh, we are at the top of the hour. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Louise, for coming on. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where I kind of shut up, hand the mic over to you uh, to give attention uh, or any, of anything that you want to give attention to uh, for the good people out there.
1: Yeah. Like I, I've, I don't really like just everybody stay safe and kind of do the best. You can be nice to each other and yeah, it's, let's make some cool games and let's share what we've built and and kind of get everybody, um, helping each other out. I think that's the, the one thing I really liked about, and that you kind of touched right at the the very end, which is like, how do you push the industry forward? So I think there's a lot of key people across the world doing insane work. Uh, insane inspiring work so i think it's just sharing that work as much as we can and it's tricky to do now because we lost a few of our kind of venues to do that in but kind of figure it out there's communities online so i think i'll plug Um there's a couple of discords for the houdini stuff um, so yeah just i think join online communities and try to share as much as you can and even if it's just abstract how do i move a rock in houdini i think that helps people and Here's a cool rock generator that I did in my spare time. And there's a lot of cool stuff that we can do to kind of just push each other forward. And and it is honestly like an insane, that's why I went back in the industry, right? I kind of came out of retirement. I kind of said, I'm burnt out. I'm done. I've done this enough. I I know what it looks like. I don't want to do it anymore. Um, Set out for about four and a half years and just got too inspired to be honest to, to Mm -hmm. see all the crazy stuff people are doing with next gen and um, all the capabilities people have now. And, there's just so much cool stuff that that is possible and it's coming out. So I kind of want to back in and it is a, it is a bright time, even though we might think that it's like ah crap, like now we're just going to kill ourselves harder. But no, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can learn. And I think that's the key of it. You just keep learning. There's not enough tech artists to go around. Um, Everybody's hiring them like crazy, especially now with the pandemic, which is like with distributor work and everything, there's a lot of just, how do you make people faster and, and, and build better tools for, for their workflows? Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's, that's my rent. Um, let be nice to each other. Let's keep sharing what we got. And let's make some cool games. Cool, man. Amen to
0: that. A lot of tech artists. Uh, thank you uh, for coming on the show, man, and uh, sharing your thoughts and uh, insight about what the future looks like. I do have high hopes um, with this new gen of people, and it's not just games anymore. I think a lot of game developers forget that there's a huge industry that are using yeah. our tools now, and uh, it is it is a great time to be a game developer for sure, man. Uh, definitely super jelly for for a lot of people who are sitting on the outside just seeing this happen, so much like yourself so cool man nice to have you back (laughs) doing cool shit for us uh but thank you uh and have a good night you too You can also follow me on Twitter at BlueChamps, B-L-U-C-H-A-M-P-S you want to catch these episodes live every Tuesdays and Thursdays, go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore chance. Email me any of your concerns or questions that you want me to read aloud at the beginning of each episode at info at And if you want to further support us and help unlock the next feature which is the voicemail feature, go to patreon.com